Blog Talk Radio.
this is our Biome and Hitway. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine uh, brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, March 19, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. This program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the military drills held uh, being held by NATO on the border with Ukraine as the Russian military utilizes supersonic missiles. African leaders and civil society are under continuing pressure by Washington to endorse his position on Ukraine. We'll have uh, reports on that as well. Nigeria is facing fuel shortages within one of the continent's largest producers of petroleum. And the Polisario Front of the Western Sahara strongly rejected Spain's position of recognizing Morocco's control of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. We will hear a report on the video discussions uh, between the United States and Chinese leaders, uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, over the Ukraine crisis, uh, which took place uh, just yesterday. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on Women's History Month. Uh, we'll have an examination of the lifetimes and contributions of Hallie Quinn Brown, uh, among other uh, great uh, luminaries uh, in uh, history. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra featuring Baniel and Nana from their 1987 album. Let's listen in. Na 
Bye. 
Akoma tongoro miso oboli Nala tisa ya tampa la tae Boli ngwe fili matampo ele Kina premisa tamo kenzo toe No kina kufa pona yo
Sala no ki no ki nga na yo toku tana e Na boy na nga o sali na mwasi na yo Nga ipera sali na mobali na kaidie Sala nga plezi toku tana to solola Na kanisi o korengrete mokete o flora Na yemi maloba ya mi bali ya mi koloyo Kasi po na nga na sali o ki Flora, Talandenge borataka ba chance na mokili anzawe nzawe atindi ngana yo tolinga nae nai penzawe motatinda malimbala abaina kosamo balina ngai odie mokoloko kufa nzawe akotuna yo mobalina tinda ki oboya ki etina yo mokoloko kufa nzawe akotuna yo osala ki koloko mozi ya moninga Laura Salanga y plaisir, tokutana ton solola, na kanisi o koregrete mon kete o flora. Na yemi maloba yemi bali yemi koloyoy, kasi pona mala sali o kipetie. Flora na lingina pesa yo ni corona bomengo nanse, banani bazali koko sa yo flora. Na mokea soka na mokea pesa kangai, wana eko kinangai. Esto kokiko la kisangai mopalinayo natala sokia kokani nangai flora Esque yo pero kokiko la kisanga mosinayo natala sokingai nalekie nanini Talandenge borataka ba chance na mokili anzawe nzawe atindinga nayo tolinga nae Nai pensawe motatinda malimala abaina kosamo balinangai Koloko kufa, nzawe akotuna yo Mopali na tindaki, oboya kie tinae Yope mokoloko kufa, nzawe akotuna yo Osalaki koluma mwasi ya mojinga, ozinae Lo 
in uh, Ukraine. And in other news uh, from uh, the Ukrainian war front, uh, Russia says it has used hypersonic missiles for the first time in Ukraine to destroy a weapons storage site in the west of the country. Hypersonic missiles travel faster than the speed of sound and can maneuver mid-flight, uh, making them hard to track and intercept. Russia's defense ministry says it used Russia's defense ministry says it used the technology to strike an underground arms depot in the village of Dilatin, around 100 kilometers from Ukraine's border with Romania. Russia says that forces have broken through the defenses of the besieged southern port of Maripol and are now inside the war-torn city. The mayor of Maripol confirms uh, to the uh, BBC that Ukrainian and Russian forces are engaged in gun battles in the heart of the southern port which has suffered relentless shelling. Rescuers uh, continue searching for people trapped in a bomb shelter buried under the wreckage of a bomb theater in Maripol. Uh, Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky says that 130 people have been saved, but that hundreds are still trapped in rubble after Wednesday's strike on the theater where people were sheltering from uh, the shelling. Zelensky calls for urgent talks uh, with Russia, saying in a Facebook video that they are the only chance for Russia to minimize the damage done with their own mistakes. He has been pushing for direct talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Moscow claims that several rounds of negotiations have made progress on one of its key demands that Ukraine becomes a neutral state. Uh, Kiev, which is demanding international security guarantees, denies this position has changed. Uh, United States President Joe Biden laid out his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, the, quote, consequences, unquote, of any support for Russia in its war against Ukraine. Uh, that's according to a statement from the White House. Uh, during their first call, since the Russian military operation in Ukraine, lasting almost two hours, Xi said that, quote, in no one's interest, uh, war, uh, but he showed no sign of giving in to U.S. pressure to join Western condemnation of the military operation. Now, Russian forces uh, <clears throat> destroy uh, an aircraft repair plant near Lviv Airport, but no one is hurt. <clears throat> Mayor Antti Sadovy says of, uh, on the messaging app uh, Telegram, <clears throat> the western city is just 70 kilometers uh, from the border with uh, NATO member Poland. Now, authorities in the capital of Kiev uh, says one person was killed when a Russian rocket struck residential tower blocks in the northwestern suburbs. They said a school and playground were also hit. In the eastern city of Kharkiv, uh, Russian strikes demolished the six-story building of a higher education institution, killing one person and leaving another trapped in the wreckage, officials say. The U.N. warns uh, that humanitarian needs are becoming ever more urgent across eastern Ukraine. The potential fatal lack of food, water, and medicines in besieged cities such as Maripol and Sumy. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, as current uh, G7 president, invited the leaders of the world's top industrialized countries to meet on Ukraine as part of the European Union and NATO summits uh, next week. The International Energy uh, Agency. Uh, urges the governments to urgently implement measures to cut global oil consumption within months following the supply fears stemming from the Russian special military intervention in Ukraine. The three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, 
announced the expulsion of a total of 10 Russian diplomats over Moscow's intervention in Ukraine. More than 3.25 million refugees have fled Ukraine since the Russian intervention, the United Nations says, with more than 2 million crossing the border into uh, Poland. Now, um, in regard to the African continent, uh, East African President, uh, Ugandan uh, President Yoweri Museveni recently remarked that Russia's war on Ukraine should be seen in the context of Moscow being the center of gravity for Eastern Europe. Uh, his son, Lieutenant General Mokozi Kayane Rugaba, was more forceful, declaring that most Africans, quote, support Russia's stand in Ukraine, unquote, and, quote, Putin is absolutely right, unquote. Amid a worldwide course of condemnation, much of Africa has either pushed back or remained noticeably quiet. 25 of Africa's uh, 54 nations abstained or didn't record a vote in the UN General Assembly resolution earlier this month condemning Russia. The reason uh, many nations on the continent of 1.3 billion people have longstanding ties and support from Moscow dating back to the Cold War when the Soviet Union supported the anti-colonial struggles. Those relations have tightened in recent years as U.S. interests in Africa appeared to wane under President Donald Trump's administration, uh, Russia, along with China, expanded its influence, enlarging its economic footprint to include everything from agricultural programs to energy plants. In 2019, dignitaries from 43 African nations attended a summit with Russia which also has become the dominant exporter of weapons into sub-Saharan Africa, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. The developments have not gone unnoticed. Last month, European Union leaders held a long, delayed summit in Brussels to discuss ways to counteract Russia's and China's influence in Africa, while Western military and civilian leaders are eyeing Russia's advances, presence on both the African continent and in the Middle East, as, the, as long-term threats to security in the, West, in, in the West, China also is among the few countries showing support for Moscow. Now, there have been exceptions to the current sympathy running through Africa with Kenya and Ghana criticizing Russia's actions. But elsewhere on the continent, countries not only are abstaining from criticism, they appear to be celebrating the alliances with Russia. As the war in Ukraine escalated, leaders of South Africa's ruling African National Congress Party attending an event at the Russian embassy in Cape Town to mark the 30th anniversary of the country's diplomatic ties with the Russian uh, Federation. The ANC has ties to the Kremlin, extending back to the Soviet Union's diplomatic and military support of the struggles against apartheid, which Western powers did not provide. Some South Africans point out that Russia was not among the colonizers of Africa. South Africa's friendship with Russia is rooted through bonds of brotherhood, said lawmaker Floyd Shivambu, a leader of the country's opposition party, the Economic Freedom Fighters. Shivambu said Russia's actions in Ukraine are necessary to prevent NATO's expansion. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said his country abstained from the UN censor resolution because it failed to call for meaningful engagement uh, with Russia. We have seen how, over time, countries have been invaded, wars have been launched over many years, and that has left devastation, Ramaphosa told lawmakers Thursday, criticizing NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe. And some leaders of certain countries have been killed. Our own continent, Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, was killed. He said he believes Russia feels a national existential threat from NATO. 
also abstaining uh, from the UN vote was neighboring Zimbabwe, which had previously escaped sanctions of its own at the United Nations for alleged human rights abuses and election corruption, thanks to vetoes uh, by the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has praised Russia and China as, quote, dependable pillars, unquote, citing the guns they provided and the training they gave fighters in the 1970s war against white minority rule in Rhodesia. Russia has major investments in Zimbabwe, including a multi-billion dollar joint mining venture in the Great Dyke area, which holds one of the world's largest deposits of platinum. Uh, Russia also is involved in gold and diamond mining operations in Zimbabwe. Uganda, where Russian officers regularly assist in the maintenance of military equipment, authorities recently announced the signing of a contract with the Russian firm to install tracking devices in vehicles to combat violent crime. The East African country's United Nations representative said Uganda abstained from the UN resolution on Russia to protect its neutrality as the next chair of the non-aligned movement, a pro-war era group of 120 member states that includes almost every African nation. But President Museveni went further, actually meeting with the Russian ambassador as the war raged in Ukraine. The Ugandan leader, who was held power since 1986, has criticized the West's aggression against Africa. Museveni's government in recent months has tangled with the U.S. and other countries that have expressed concern over last year's disputed election and growing allegations of rights abuses. Museveni has also accused the West of interfering in the domestic affairs of Uganda. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari announced on Thursday the implementation of measures to end the shortage of fuel and power across Africa's most populous state. Nigerians have been faced with a shortage of fuel for a month, followed by power outages over the last few days. Mohamedou Buhari blamed the shortages of gas on sabotage of gas pipelines and ongoing maintenance of some gas power plants. Speaking on television, the Nigerian president apologized to all Nigerians and announced that plans had been set in motion to address these issues. The president also reassured Nigerians that consumers would be protected against the current price spikes. And finally, the Polisario Front, the independence movement uh, in the Western Sahara, has accused Spain of making a grave error after it changed its position and backed Morocco's autonomy plan for the disputed Western Sahara. Now, Morocco sees the Western Sahara, a former Spanish colony, with rich phosphate resources and access to lucrative Atlantic fishing waters as an integral part of its territory. The Algeria-backed Polisario's independence movement took up arms in the 1970s and have continued to demand an independence referendum on the basis of a 1991 deal that included a ceasefire. Now, just on Friday, Spanish Foreign Minister Jose Manuel Alvarez said Morocco's 2007 proposal to offer Western Sahara autonomy was the most serious, realistic, and credible basis to end the decades-long dispute over the vast territory. This sparked an annual response from the Polisario, which expressed surprise over the move in a statement released uh, late yesterday. Spain had until now tried to appear neutral on the issue of Western Sahara a mostly desert region the size of Spain. Uh, it is his former colony. The position expressed by the Spanish government totally contradicts international legitimacy, the 
adversarial statement said, the liberation movement called on political sides in Spain to exert pressure on the Spanish government to correct this grave error. United Nations, the African Union, the European Union, the International Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, and all regional organizations do not recognize Morocco's sovereignty over the Western Sahara, uh, the liberation movements. And earlier this month, the United States reiterated its support for Morocco's plan for autonomy in the Western Sahara. He said, uh, the Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, uh, said, uh, Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, said, we continue to view Morocco's autonomy plan as serious, credible, and realistic. In late 2020, the Trump administration recognized Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara as a quid pro quo for the king's mending ties with the state of Israel. The deal sparked renewed tensions with neighboring Algeria. The Biden administration has not yet reversed Trump's decision. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles, batches, in numerous uh, newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to, of course, uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, March 19, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners via emails, blogs and websites, and through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break uh, with Betty Wright. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
left a bad scar on my heart. I don't know. Next time love comes around, I just manage to reach right down in that same old battle-torn heart and find some more love. That's one thing about real love. No matter how much you give away, you'll still have some more to give. Love is just fun and real. I don't care what anybody says Till the day I die I'm gonna get in love I'm gonna love as long as I live I live for love I live for love I live for love alone And I'm talking about real love Now if you don't know what real love is You stay out of this conversation all right? It's for grown people you know? Every day of my life I don't care what Right, and for love alone, and you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, March 19, 2022. And uh, as we talked about uh, earlier in the Pan African Newswire segment, uh, the ongoing conflict uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, the Russian uh, special military operation into the country designed and in response to uh, the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization headed uh, principally by the United States. And uh, there was a meeting uh, yesterday between uh, Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden. Here's a report uh, from uh, CGTN uh, on that meeting uh, that took place uh, yesterday, which got very scant uh, press coverage in the United States. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome to World Inside. The program is coming to you live from Beijing. We start today's program focusing on Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden meeting through video link. This is the first time the leaders of the world's two largest economies have spoken to each other since the Russian-Ukraine conflict began. It's been nearly a month since Russia launched a military operation against Ukraine. Though the two sides have started negotiations, the progress is slow and attacks against the Ukrainian cities are ongoing. UN reports more than 700 civilians in Ukraine have died since Russian attack began. That is, some of the numbers indicate 52 of those casualties were children. Another 3 million people have fled the country. China has provided the three deliveries of humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Well, on Wednesday, President Biden announced the $800 million military aid package for Ukraine. China has been calling for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. The call between the Chinese and U.S. presidents follow a meeting between top Chinese envoy Yang Jiechi and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Rome earlier this week. The last time the two presidents spoke to each other was four months ago in November 2021. And we have just in the latest readout 
from the Chinese side about what is being said in the meeting between Chinese and the U.S. president. According to the Chinese readout, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that countries should not come to the point of meeting on the battlefield. Conflict and confrontation are not in anyone's interest. Peace and security are what the international community should treasure the most. On the evening of March the 18th, President Xi Jinping from China had a video call with U.S. President Joe Biden at the request of the latter. President Xi noted the new major developments in the international landscape since their first virtual meeting last November. The prevailing trend of peace and development is facing serious challenges, according to the Chinese president. The world is neither tranquil nor stable. The Ukraine crisis is not something we want to say, said the Chinese president. The events again show that countries should not come to the point of meeting on the battlefield. Conflict and confrontation are not in anyone's interest. And peace and security are what the international community should treasure the most, according to the readout by the Chinese side. As permanent members of the UN Security Council and the world's two leading economies, we, according to the Chinese president talking to the U.S. president, must not only guide the China-U.S. relations forward along the right track, but also shoulder our share of international responsibilities and work for world peace and tranquility. That is the content of the latest readout from the Chinese side about the China-U.S. president's video link talk. For more on China-U.S. ties, joining us in Maine in the U.S., Susan Thornton, senior fellow of the Pao Tsai China Center of Yale Law School. Good to see you. Susan is also former acting assistant secretary of state from the U.S. Department of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. In Shanghai, we have Shen Dingli, professor at the Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. Last but certainly not least, we're also honored to be joined by Yuan Peng, the president of the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations, on the phone with us. Let me start by asking all of you on the immediate response to the latest readout I have on hand right here on what the two presidents have been talking about. Let's go to our guest first. Susan. Well, thank you very much, Chen Wei, and it's really good to be with all of you on this very pivotal day, I think. Welcome um, back. It sounds like um, the Chinese President Xi Jinping is stressing the need to find peace in Europe um, and to try to get a ceasefire in this conflict as soon as possible and avoid escalation. And I hope that is what the two presidents are talking about um, you know, how the best way is to go ahead and do that. I think it's, you know, we are on the brink of a destabilization of the entire globe with this crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, refugee flows, prices of food and energy going up. I mean, it's really a looming disaster for not just Europe, but the entire world. And I hope the two presidents can talk about concrete ways to stop this conflict before it gets worse. Right. Let me go to also Professor Yuan Peng on the phone with us. Professor Yuan, your immediate response to the readout from the Chinese side. Yeah, uh, from the Chinese readout, I think our Chinese policy uh, is consistent. In past several uh, days, President Xi has a, a virtual phone call with uh, French and German uh, leaders and also uh, Russian uh, leaders. 
and this time with the American uh, president. And uh, policy is very consistent. That is, uh, we, we, we want a peace and uh, secure uh, world, and we want a uh, negotiation ceasefire. So uh, I think uh, this is Chinese basic uh, principle. Our policy based on, first of all, international norms. We, we oppose war, and also we oppose uh, sanctions mm. without uh, permission of our United Nations, and also based on our national interest and also the international reality. So this time, I think U.S. and China, most important thing, just like Bernie mentioned, is, uh, is uh, peace and uh, peace is uh, treasure most. And the, the most important thing is that we, we need to put uh, all bilateral uh, disputes and uh, contradictions uh, aside for a while. And the U.S. and China, we should hold the international responsibility mm. to, to focus more on those hottest affairs, that's a Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict. This is what the major two powers should do in this moment. Mm. And, and how do you see though the international reality vis-a-vis uh, -vis what is going on the, from the Chinese readout? Uh, Professor Shen Dingli in Shanghai, please. I think uh, President Xi has made the Chinese position straightforward. First. War and a conflict is not what we need. Second, peace should prevail, and we should not let such a trend of peace uh, to be uh, hurt. Third, we call an immediate ceasefire, and all countries, including China, share work together to make a peace to return uh, to the, uh, the region. I think these are the three points mm. I take. Mm. Uh, Susan, of course, I go to you about further analysis of this. You've been going through wars and conflicts uh, when you were working for the State Department. Things are changing very dramatically, of course, over the past few years. Now, uh, this meeting has been requested or uh, uh, first uh, uh, brought out by the U.S. side. How do you see the timing of this? And will China and the U.S. be able to put aside the differences and really focusing on the urgency of the issue right now the world is facing? Well, that's a very good question, Chen uh, Wei. I think this meeting was actually something that was long in the works. I mean, we saw the travel by Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, to Rome to meet his counterpart, Yang Jiechi, earlier this week to prepare this meeting. And this is really a follow-up to... Uh, the video meeting that the two presidents had in November, which, you know, we all think, I think is a necessary thing to have these two leaders communicating frequently, at least by video. And um, I think that, you know, whether we can put aside the uh, differences up to now, I'm not sure. I'm sure they're talking about some of those bilateral differences as well. Mm -hmm. But I think this is an opportunity for the two leaders to work together on something that's fundamentally important to both countries' interests and to actually the, the interests of all the countries in the world to try to bring about this ceasefire. I don't think it will be very easy to get that ceasefire, mm. so it will take a lot of efforts from a lot of sides to mm. do so. Professor Yuan Peng from China, now we know that uh, the Russia-Ukraine issue is not just a military conflict between two countries, but also having tremendous impact on peace, stability, you know, food security of the world, the energy security of the world, not to mention the next year. Uh, 
Professor Yuan, how do you see as the two members of the Security Council, uh, P5, uh, namely, uh, how China and U.S. should shoulder this responsibility, but what is the format of shouldering this responsibility for both of them? Uh, first of all, I think the, the United States learned some lessons in the past uh, several years. For example, uh, in dealing with uh, COVID-19, if uh, at the first time American government coordinated and cooperated with China, we, we wouldn't say that today's a uh, bad situation. And now, dealing with uh, Russia and the Ukraine crisis, I think America, America, I'm afraid America has lost Russia already. And I'm afraid maybe due to its now poli uh, today's policy, it is losing China. So if uh, America loses both Russia and China simultaneously, it should be a very big strategic failure. So if that's a lesson to be learned by the United States, I think this is a good uh, test today. That's how can we put aside our differences and uh, dispute aside, mm -hmm. and now we coordinate and cooperate it in mm -hmm. dealing with the, the, the urgent uh, crisis first. This, and uh, this is the, the, the 50th anniversary of uh, Nixon's visit to Shanghai Communique, the, the, the big experiences we learned in past 50 years, yeah. I think uh, we, we need to seize this very uh, good opportunity to show U.S. and China can cooperate. Okay. Uh, now, Susan, I want to come back to you, uh, Mr. Ms. Thornton. Uh, since uh, Professor Yuan talked about uh, who lost uh, Russia and uh, whether China will be lost by the United States, reminds me of the an interesting debate uh, going on in the United States right after the PRC was founded about who lost China. And now we are at a very critical juncture right now, international issues, uh, bilateral issues. Uh, Ms. Thornton, how do you see uh, this, this issue that uh, brought up by uh, Professor Yuan who lost China? Will U.S. lose China? Well, I think that the most important thing is that we don't lose the international system mm. uh, as a result of this crisis. And certainly the United States and China are the, you know, kind of underlying foundations of keeping that system going and the two countries that benefit the most from that system. And so uh, certainly we've seen a huge violation of, I think, uh, not only UN charter principles, but also just the underlying norm of no territorial conquest in this uh, conflict in Ukraine and Russia's invasion. And certainly the U.S. and China should be the most interested in reshoring up the international system and those principles, or we're going to see an expansion of conflagrations around the world. So mm. um, certainly I think uh, it's not in U.S. interest to lose both China and Russia and push them closer together. And I hope, as Yuan Peng said, that we can use this crisis as an opportunity to try to right some of the tendencies and trends that we've seen uh, in the recent period. All right. Professor Shen, your thoughts? I think this is indeed a crucial time, and uh, it's commendable that the two presidents have conversed on the phone. Uh, it's very much needed, and I think the entire world community uh, uh, is watching uh, on this crucial moment. When the two leaders set their principle right, and clear, they must have communicated on the issue. What if we don't cooperate? Uh, there will be a lot of danger for the region 
and probably for Russia, for US, for China, no one can be uh, immune from uh, a situation when major power would not cooperate. Mm. But I think it, it may be more important to community what would happen if we cooperate. One should not only talk. If you don't do something, you are going to have a damage. Mm. We should also say America is an expert of using carrot and stick. America should not only be a leader to punish someone, but also should be a leader to shape uh, the world order, to maintain the world order. Mm. Then, since Russia has already launched the, the military action, how America can uh, make a situation when Russia would withdraw, set the ceasefire immediately and withdraw its troops in a certain way, which is not dirty, okay. not look like well, American withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. So we should respect first Ukraine's legitimate security, its integrity and sovereignty should be respected. Meantime, Russia's mm -hmm. uh, legitimate concern say okay. NATO's expansion should not hurt Russia and the Ukraine central government should protect those Russian living in Ukraine for their security and uh, uh, social welfare should be decently respected. So America, okay. China can each present a formula and China U.S. may present a joint formula to sell. Right. We're running out of time for this round of discussion. Of course, a lot of latest information are coming in as we speak. I want to thank all of you for joining us at this critical hour. This is going to be a very important meeting between China and the United States, uh, uh, the two presidents on the phone. Susan Thornton, Shen Ding Li, Yuan Peng, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Uh, that was a discussion uh, which essentially provided uh, the U.S. and the Chinese positions on uh, the situation in Ukraine. And, of course, uh, the war rages on, as we reported earlier over the uh, Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, if you want to uh, stay up on what is happening in Ukraine and its relationship to the African world, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to take a break uh, with uh, Brenda Holloway.
Brenda Holloway, and how many times uh, did you mean it? And uh, we're here uh, on uh, March 19th, 2022, Saturday evening, uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. And we're going to continue our month-long Women's History Month uh, programming. Today, we're going to focus on uh, a public figure uh, during the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. That's Haley Quinn Brown, who was an author elocutionist, uh, public speaker, uh, past president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, and an all-around uh, Renaissance woman uh, for the period. Uh, she lived uh, for a century, uh, spanning uh, the period of uh, enslavement. Um, she was born in the eastern part of the United States as a free African woman, and of course uh, became a figure public publicly uh, in both the United States and Europe as a public speaker. Let's listen uh, to this uh, discussion of uh, Hallie Quinn Brown. Good evening. On behalf of Black Mountain Library, I welcome you to another presentation in our literary series. I am Edna Baines, and I serve on the planning team. We are excited to have one of our Swannanoa Valley neighbors for our speaker in this presentation, Dr. Dalia Goodwin. Dr. Goodwin is on the faculty of Warren Wilson College, where she is a professor of history. A native of Indiana, she graduated from Florida A&M University and then received a PhD in history and African-American history from the University of Georgia. For her dissertation, she explored the life of an extraordinary but sometimes overlooked black woman, Miss Hallie Quinn Brown. Over the past weeks, I have been reading Dr. Goodwin's dissertation and it was fun reading. I really enjoyed that and I just can't say that about too many dissertations. I know you're also going to enjoy learning about Miss Hallie Quinn Brown. Following Dr. Goodwin's presentation, there will be several questions, and there will also be information on how you can contact her if you would like to know more about this subject. Once again, welcome, Dr. Goodwin. We look forward to this presentation. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, everyone, thank you for joining me in this conversation about Black woman elocutionist, Ms. Holly Quinn Brown. And before I begin my talk, I want to acknowledge the Eastern Band of the Indigenous Cherokee, upon whose land I reside, and extend a special thank you to Gail, Edna, and Melissa from the Black Mountain Public Library. The title of my talk is Holly Quinn Brown, Musings on a Black Woman Elocutionist. I'm going to start with reminding some and introducing to others who Ms. Brown was, then I'll move into a discussion and analysis of her work, and finally offer some reflection. This is Ms. Hallie Quinn Brown, born March 10th, about 1849, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the fifth of six children born to Thomas and Francis Brown. The Brown family relocated to Ontario, a thriving, black, uh, a thriving center of black population in Canada in 1864. Brown would go on to attend and graduate from Wilberforce College in 1873. Throughout her life, she served as an educator, dynamic elocutionist, dedicated suffragist, and unwavering temperance crusader. 
Primarily, scholars remember Brown for her work as a professional elocutionist and emphasized her usage of speech and rhetoric as an instrument for Black racial uplift. By the late 1800s, elocution as an academic discipline appeared in the formal academy and increasingly as a form of entertainment for elite and middle classes. Indeed, excellence in elocution highlighted the art of discourse and became a science of body control and mental discipline. Brown mastered this art form and toured the United States and Europe as an individual reader or lecturer and with concert companies speaking in behalf of organizations and colleges. Her distinct techniques and style drew diverse crowds and garnered thousands of dollars to finance and promote her causes. She authored textbooks in elocution and demonstrated its function in exhibiting morally upright, principled, transformative speech. Brown's skill as an elocutionist set her on a level far above her peers. Her colleagues celebrated her for being of rare power and skill. American journalists esteemed her as a woman with few superiors and no equals. Internationally, European newspapers lauded her as one of the finest female elocutionists in the world. Brown's innovative performance style incorporated the oral traditions of African-American storytelling, as well as the technique and rhythm associated with African-American preaching and congregational singing. She merged recitation, lecture, song, and poetry in a manner that not only entertained, but also preserved African-American cultural art forms. Brown found her passion in elocution and put it to her advantage whether it was fundraising for libraries, ladies' dormitories, scholarships, or supplemental income for her personal finances, her numerous tours and countless appearances economically sustained Brown and her causes. In addition to the economic motivation and benefit, these tours enabled Brown to get a firsthand account of the condition of Black people across America and the world. It provided her with the vantage point from which she could appropriately assess the condition of Black people and especially see the needs of Black women. Through elocution, Brown came into her own as a political woman. And from here, I want to pull out three areas in Brown's work where we see her use her voice or the spoken or written word to advocate in behalf of Black people and specifically Black women. Throughout her career as an educator, Brown developed a specific philosophy of education centered on themes of Christian moral education and equal educational opportunities for each gender that she believed would lead to Black racial uplift. The term Black racial uplift, or, or simply put, race uplift, represents the inward turn efforts and self-help ideologies of African-American women and men to change positively the social, political, and economic direction of Black people. This collection of goals and philosophies for African-Americans included, among others, education, equal opportunities, health reforms, political representation, community development, and business ownership. A distinct group of African-American women and men, known as race women and men, and uh, led the movement and distinguished themselves from the masses through their financial wealth, educational attainment, and scrupulous virtue. They saw their interventions as a positive force in shaping the destiny and common collective of Black people. Now, as much as Brown and her colleagues used Christian education to offer hope, they believed that Christian education was their only hope. She invested her life in the idea of upright, moral teaching leading to African-American equality and relied on past histories to do so. 
Brown confidently maintained, quote, the histories of ancient republics demonstrate that without universal Christian education, that is a sufficient intelligent virtue among the people, there cannot exist true liberty. In other words, Christian education led to and maintained freedom. Insisting upon Christian education worked both ways. On the one hand, living in a democratic society entitled a person to an education, and the only acceptable type of education a democratic society offers is a Christian education. On the other hand, Christian education's focus on moral values and leadership trained individuals in modern model citizenship. Moral character led to progressive democratic societies. And Brown believed that Christian education facilitated black racial uplift, but she also believed that the act of participating in education, teacher or student, exercised citizenship and made a meaningful contribution to society. It gave African-Americans, quote, the opportunity to make real what the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Bill of Rights said. Education became the means for African-Americans to access promises and privileges due them. Education was the practice of their freedom. And if education is the practice of freedom, then it must be available to everyone, which represents the second part of her philosophy of education. Brown and her colleagues believed education prepared women for their spiritual missions and purposes in life, namely motherhood, as well as the gender specificity of race uplift. Education, she wrote, enabled women to cleave to those things which enlarge her sphere and tend to uplift, which make for better citizenship, for child welfare legislation, health and sanitation, to work for higher standards in art and literature, for improvement in the moral, social, and industrial conditions and world peace. She understood the education of women to be essential to society's most fundamental unit, the family. In a very matter-of-fact manner, Brown stated at the African Methodist Episcopal Church Conference in 1889 that, quote, men expect to see something more than dressed dolls in their parlors in these progressive times. If a man is educated and his wife is not, he will soon outgrow her. He will be seeking the society of some other higher educated woman. At, this, at one point during the same uh, AME conference, Brown suggested that the husband go to school for six months and the wife attend school for the other six months to equalize the matter. And this was in 1889. Women's education did more than make wives more compelling for their husbands. It taught Black women the skills they needed to contend in the 20th century. At the, turn of the 20, at the turn of the century, America repositioned itself within international economic and political frameworks, while immigration, industrialization, urbanization, and capitalist expansion proliferated. Brown's educational philosophies reflected those advancements and presented new, varied, and necessary opportunities to women outside of domesticity and increasingly separate from motherhood, wifedom as well. Equal educational opportunities for women enabled women to lessen or end possibly their dependency on men. Brown also endorsed women's physical education as part of school curriculum. Recalling an episode from her own life after she enrolled in college, a professor, Reverend John G. Mitchell, told Brown, quote, you must not do so-and-so. You must be still. You must be ladylike. You must not act like Tommy. You must learn to be refined. You must not romp and skip. 
Initially, Brown seemed to struggle with this chastisement and resigned herself to the sedentary, refined lady, or what scholar Colette Dowling refers to as the cult of frailty. See, physicians of the era believed that human bodies contained a finite amount of expendable energy, and women's bodies harnessed energy for reproduction. Many doctors and other specialists believed educational pursuits, mental or physical activities interfered with women's primary focus and thus depleted women's energy supply. Years after the incident, though, Brown began politely debunking the idea that excess physical activity harmed women's genitals, um, hindered their reproductive ability, and made them unladylike. In fact, she argued that exercise helped women. And while she does not use this medical terminology uh, commonly associated with the connection between uh, motor development, cognitive development, and hormonal release, Brown did believe that, quote, brain power will never attain its highest possibilities unless there is a healthy and complete physical development. Girls may jump and skip and play and develop muscle and get health and vigor. Women needed exercise and physical activity as if their life depended upon it. Women's rights advocates supported this notion and encouraged women of the era to reject the cult of frailty and embrace the cult of ability. The cult of ability faced many detractors like AME Minister James Johnson, who insisted women's efforts to, quote, masculinize herself, lessens her modesty and damages her standing as a woman. She was not made to show the brawny arms of Vulcan nor the ponderous proportions of the Antilles. Despite the bicycle's new exercise and leisure machine of the 1880s, uh, promises to help women strengthen their abdominal muscles and develop strong leg muscles to improve pelvic tone and help make childbirth um, easier, Johnson thought that women just, quote, simply didn't look right uh, on it, and he chastised women for drafting on manhood. Their behavior subverted the natural order, and they failed as true women and instead succeeded as, quote, monstrous outgrowth of the coarser elements of female nature. Arguments endorsing women's physical activity occurred alongside arguments to eliminate restrictive physical clothing imposed upon women, such as corsets and girdles. Brown urged women to rely on their natural muscle and backbone rather than those artificial supports. One woman claimed that long skirts and corsets perpetuated women's weakness by literally tying us up in a clothing that our muscles in some parts of our body dwindle so they become useless. Early women's rights activist Mary Wollenstone Craft insisted that preventing girls and young women from physical activity and exercise kept them from full development and made women weak. Cultivating physical frailty uh, ensured women remained weak, exhausted, immobile, unable to move, and dependent. It was an effort to immobilize women socially and politically. Brown's endorsement of women's physical activity and the success of womanhood asserted women's political rights beginning with their person. Brown's advocacy for physically strong women, though, uh, women seems inconsistent with her endorsement of a genteel women. When Black women appropriated respectability as a women's redeeming feature, it apparently required them to avoid unfeminine images of vigorous women and physical strength. Scientific racism supported beliefs that stripped Black women of womanhood and humanity and classified them as breeders and laborers only. 
The sensationalized physical strength of black women then justified their physical and sexual exploitation. Now, on a personal level, Brown wanted very much to embrace the totality of respectability, but the realities of her life never allowed her to access that particular type of womanhood. Brown learned early on in life that women needed physical strength and must participate in physical activity to function. Growing up on a farm in Canada, Brown oversaw most of the labor-intensive farm maintenance. Later, as a teacher in Reconstruction Era, Mississippi and South Carolina, she had to haul logs, chop wood, pull mules, and literally erect school buildings. So the idea of a woman, especially a black woman, not exercising, sweating, or engaging in physical activity was preposterous to Brown, and certainly to other women. Brown's educational philosophy negotiated between the esoteric ideals of Victorian womanhood and the realities of black women's lives. She reconciled physical strength and respectability to offer an expanded version of femininity and specifically notions of black femininity. The black woman that she constructed for racial uplift had upstanding moral character, academic preparation, domestic training, and the stamina to survive. To ensure black female education and contribute to black women's empowerment, Brown then turned her attention to black women's organizations, namely the National Association of Colored Women. In 1896, the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, became the first and only all black national organization for black female activism, organizing and leadership in the 20th century. Black women's local and national clubs provided a space for black women to meet not only the needs of their communities in black America at large, but address those needs in a manner that reflected the evolving discourse of the turn of the 20th century. The NACW organized a platform that advocated moral superiority, education, respectability, social purity, and home care to negate white beliefs of black inferiority and immorality, and then amplify claims of black political enfranchisement and social equality. Now, this is an image of Hallie Quinn Brown in the center in the beige whitish suit. And there's also Ida B. Wells Barnett in the picture about two people down from her. Um, and these were just some of the women affiliated with the National Association of Colored Women, and they were stopping for a photo as a delegation to speak to President Warren Harding in 1922 on anti-lynching. And I just really like this picture and wanted to share that with you all. So Brown becomes a key figure in both the local and national clubs. She founded several clubs in her home state of Iowa, um, Ohio, excuse me, and served as president, state president of the Ohio Association of Colored Women's Clubs from 1905 to 1912. From 1920 to 1924, Brown presided over the NACW as its national president. Brown's national presidential terms coincided with a period of enormous possibility for women and African Americans. Now, we know that by 1920, most states had ratified the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enfranchised women and expanded women's political power. The flapper and uh, sexual movement occurring among women so often ascribed to the era really did not interest Brown and most of her contemporaries. Brown viewed uh, the bobbed hair and abbreviated skirts and rolled hose, as she called it, of the 1920 flappers as nothing more than a passing fad that dishonored Black women. Sexual freedom really did not indicate women's progress and equality. It actually hijacked the discussion of women's needs and belittled women's claims of sexual exploitation. 
Instead, women's organizations like the NACW stress political strategies celebrating women's redeeming features, uh, their current or potential motherhood, and inherent morality to usher in social reforms and legislation. Although pervaded with problems, industrial growth created new types of job opportunities for African Americans who approached the era hopeful for a better future as well. Many Black Southerners migrated to northern cities in search of new employment. African American men serviced in the armed forces and the sacrifice of Black women on the home front during World War I demonstrated African American patriotism but came short of any longstanding legal changes. At the same time, African Americans of the 1920s increasingly turned away from a liberal reform method to a more revolutionary approach in the struggle for civil rights. A prolific movement that celebrated Black aesthetics and analyzed the complexity of Black life in America simultaneously occurred. And so it's in this context that Brown developed a presidential agenda that considered the emerging gender consciousness among women triggered by their access to suffrage alongside ideologies of race progress. During her presidency, Brown reinvigorated the NACW's educational mission. Through the NACW, Brown continued to carry out her educational philosophy with the backing of her fellow club women, many of whom had their own woman-centered um, emphasis or educational on education um, as well. In 1923, she began her largest work in the name of Black female education, a $50,000 educational campaign. As all material objection according to nature laws must decay and pass away, she proclaimed education and access to education for Black women built an enduring monument. And while Brown endeavored to build a symbolic educational monument, she simultaneously worked to tear down another. In 1923, the U.S. Senate granted the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the UDC, a place in Washington, D.C. to erect a monument to the most salient stereotypes of enslaved women, Black mammies. This is a slide of the um, proposed monument uh, structure and imagery. The Black Mammy that the UDC desired to memorialize existed both as a real person and as a creative figure of the white Southern imagination. Enslaved Black women who served as domestic workers and primary caretaker of white as well as Black children during slavery received the name Mammy. White Southerners in particular perceived them as enjoying this condition of servitude, uh, deference, and loyal. Post-emancipation, many Black women continued as domestic workers and caretakers of white children, but sought to define those conditions on their own terms, causing many white Southerners to long for this Black mammy. The post-slavery memory of Black mammy represented a narrative of Southern redemption and projected myth, sentiment, labor, and white supremacy upon Black women's bodies. As president of the leading organization of Black women, Brown denounced the erection of such a monument and image as representative of Black women. Brown countered the claims of Mammy's faithful disposition by referring to her, quote, years of tortured mind and body through generations of oppression and suppression, through subjection, fear of the block and the lash, and through the heartaches and groans in the nighttime of her own lost babes. She was the unfortunate, faithful victim of the white man's lust. 
Brown commended Mammy, though, for maintaining moral superiority far above her oppressors, especially white women of the South, who Brown argued knowingly participated in black female exploitation. Brown claimed that the erection of such a statue in the name of tribute, appreciation, and honor would cause Mammy to rise from the dead crying, I asked for a fish, you gave me a serpent. I asked for bread and you gave me a stone. And ironically, the proposed granite monument literally gave Black women, Mammy, a stone. Feminist theorist Marilyn Fry suggested gestures of this type actually reveal oppression. The Black Mammy Monument pretended to be a helpful service, but had no practical meaning for Black Americans and actually demonstrated the extreme detachment the UDC and its supporters had from the concrete realities of African American life. Furthermore, the UDC's insistence upon fundraising, politicking, and building a monument illuminated white superiority over African American needs. Brown stated it plainly, though. Quote, if the daughters of the Confederacy are actuated by any deep reverence and gratitude for the former slaves, if they wish to salve their conscience and make amends for the wrongs heaped upon the black mammy, let them begin to change the conditions in this fair Southland. Brown went on to detail a short list of meaningful contributions for the UDC, including a living wage, decent accommodations for travelers um, and schools. African-Americans did not need a black mammy monument. They needed food and acceptable housing, justice in the courthouse, a repeal of black codes and Jim Crow laws, an end to lynching, and an end to defrauding black tenant farmers. African-Americans needed economic empowerment. And Brown concluded that African-Americans needed the entitlements of citizenship and humanity, not a, quote, dumb statue to the black mammy. Brown's choice of words invites further investigation. Our internationally acclaimed elocutionists knew the politics of language. The very act and audacity of speaking was an exercise in citizenship and practice of freedom. Now, in our modern day language, the word dumb is used as a type of slang or, or, or something uh, for something that is uncool, ridiculous, or foolish. But in the 1920s, dumb was still used as a literary and medical term um, for something or someone who could not and did not talk. So in calling it a, quote, dumb statue, Brown stated the obvious because statues do not speak. However, if the statue could speak, what would she say? Well, Black Mammy would say nothing because the monument was of a woman who could not speak, an enslaved woman. And the thought of a statue immortalizing a silenced Black woman unable to engage in the politics of her life exacerbated the initial insult of erecting the statue. So when and where do we see Black women speaking for themselves and on their own terms? Well, I argue that Hallie Quinn Brown set the stage by doing so, for doing so by editing the first collective collaborative Black women's encyclopedia, Homespun Heroines and Other Women of Distinction in 1926. Here is um, a short list of some of the earliest examples of collective biographies featuring African-Americans. Hallie Quinn Brown's publication, Homespun Heroines, in 1926, mirrors these other historical works as collective biography, yet remains recognizably different in that it was a collective collaborative biography of Black women written by multiple Black women as demonstrated by the examples here and from other historiographical studies of African-American texts, few collective biographies devoted to the 
experiences of black women existed, and women authored only a handful of those. To be sure, I do not intend to suggest that you must be a member of a particular group to write a history, that is to say, only black women can write black women's history. However, these black women authors asserted a particular insider knowledge that authorized and emboldened them as a group to document the experiences of black women. There we go. <laughs> okay, this is a list of the subjects in the book. And I've outlined them here alphabetically for aesthetic purposes. In the book, Brown chronologically ordered the subjects by date of birth. So in um, the sketches in Homespun Heroines begin with Martha Payne, mother of African Methodist Episcopal Church Bishop Daniel Payne, and conclude with Eliza Fox, the former president of the Women's Baptist Association of Virginia. And at the time of publication, some of the women had already achieved national and international acclaim and posthumously retained celebrities such as Phyllis Wheatley, Harriet Tubman, and Sojourner Truth. Most of the women included in Homespun Heroine achieved national prominence at the turn of the 20th century, such as former president of the National Association of Colored Women and wife of Booker T. Washington, Margaret Murray Washington, and business uh, mogul and entrepreneur, Madam C.J. Walker. For white readers, these biographies may have appeared exceptional and not reflective of everyday Black women's experiences. Indeed, these biographies did not fit into the popular historic narrative about Black women then, and they certainly challenge that narrative now. These sketches did not perpetuate negative myths of Black women. These types of accounts of Black women forced the public to reevaluate their stereotypes about Black women. For Black readers, Brown's strategic use of collective biography made the lives and history of Black women accessible and meaningful. Collective biographies of African Americans offer tangible meanings of racial possibility from within the Black community without merely mimicking white American beliefs of progress or possibility or showing African Americans in an accommodationist act. It demonstrated their successful balance of domesticity and professional activities and careers. The collective biographies became a powerful, efficient tool for disseminating life sketches and stately portraits of leading successful and representative women. It presented the reader with a familiar, approachable reference group against whom character and success may be measured. Equally as fascinating are, um, as the heroines are the 28 authors who contributed to this collection. It is this group of under-acknowledged Black women intellectuals who created the field of Black women's history. Their work with homespun heroines made the space for modern Black women's historical encyclopedia canonical standards, such as Darlene Clark Hines' three-volume Black Women in America and Jesse Carney Smith's Notable Black Women, and others which normalized the intersection of U.S. history, African-American history, and women's history. Homespun heroines and other women of distinction became part of a structured and well-established canon used to affirm identity, personhood, and patriotism. And as a text, it institutionalized Black women as a subject of serious inquiry in American history. Brown captured the ways that race and gender intersect that force Black women to always negotiate dual systems of oppression in ways that Black men and white women did not. The biographical sketches in Homespun Heroines revealed how Black women navigated oppressive structures and barriers via education, work, 
service and respectability, um, enabling Brown to identify these women and others like them as a specific and independent class. The type of class Brown constructed does not follow a true Marxian economic class uh, formation model, but rather a social and cultural formation model as expressed by Robert Lanning. Lanning surmised, a class is comprised of people in similar social circumstances such as living conditions, the kind of works they do, the comparable position on the larger social divisions of labor. And Brown demonstrated that Black women lived, worked, and loved like all people, but that the conditions under which Black women did so situated them uniquely. And once a class is formed, individuals then develop a class consciousness that is an awareness of their place in the system. Homespun heroines, I argue, is the history of a distinct class consciousness predicated on membership in three separate classes. Um, woman, their gender, Black, their race, and America, their nation. Black American women's triple consciousness produced a specific reality that necessitated strategic maneuvering to ensure Black women's empowerment. Brown's decision to organize the biographies chronologically according to the subject's date of birth demonstrates her acknowledgement of the historical tradition of Black women's activism and support for women, Black people, and the United States. The organizational involvement, multiple careers and roles performed by these women demonstrate their efforts to promote an affirmative vision of Black women. The ultimate result Margarita Lyons held was the formation of a sisterhood. This included the establishment of reforms, the cementing of bonds of unity, the defense of dignity of our women. And if I may note, it was Hallie Quinn Brown who stated um, that Black women needed a conference of, of women, both locally and nationally, to foster closer relationships between women and the contact of sisterly affections. Furthermore, the familiar ties and spiritual kinships forged between the subjects and biographers and homespun heroines confirmed the existence of a collective commitment to Black women by Black women. As the document and textual representation of Black women's class consciousness, homespun heroine used homespun heroines, excuse me, used Black women's lives and relationships to politicize their identity and behavior. In conclusion, I have presented a few aspects of the work of Ms. Holly Quinn Brown and demonstrated how she used her voice through the spoken and written word to advocate in behalf of Black people and specifically Black women. And so through an examination of the work of a woman who worked and stood in the margins, we can see how she inspired people, sought to correct ahistorical imaginings of Black women, how she countered the singular narrative about Black women. She celebrated the tenacity, resilience, and hope of Black women. She preserved Black history and contributed to the institutionalization of the study of Black women as a subject of serious inquiry. And as my forthcoming book will show, Brown was involved in many other historic moments that offer us the opportunity to learn more about her and the experiences about Black women in America at the turn of the 20th century. Thank you. I am going to bring Edna back in and she will moderate the Q&A. There she is. <laughs> oh, I believe you're muted. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Goodwin. 
uh, technology is not my thing. So thank you for your presentation and being so uh, patient with me as well through this. I continue to be inspired by Hallie Quinn Brown every time I hear more about her. Um, and we appreciate this. In fact, uh, this presentation, Dr. Goodwin uh, originally presented this wonderful program a few days ago. Uh, it was uh, due to a glitch. It was not recorded. And we thank her for agreeing to come back and record it again, which it has been. And so now uh, she is immortal, as is Dr. <laughs> Hallie Quinn Brown, at least for the next 30 days. <laughs> and you can get a link to this presentation to use and to share with others by contacting the Black Mountain Public Library. As Dalia said, we do have a few questions to follow up. Um, and the first is, how did you uh, come upon uh, Hallie Quinn Brown? She's definitely... Uh, a woman who was ahead of her time. How did you find out about her? Why did you decide to research her? So um, I knew that I wanted to uh, study and research black women for um, my PhD. And um, initially I wanted to do something on Ida B. Wells Barnett. I was just completely fascinated um, with her and I thought she was just an amazing person. And then um, a Ultimate biography was published on Holly, uh, excuse me, on Ida B. Wells Barnett during um, my time in graduate school, and so I said, well, who who else can we can we talk about um, and and share with with other people? And so in my research, um, I kept coming across her name, and she was in all these different places. I said, well, who is she? And so um, I couldn't find any real information um, on her. There was very um, little that had been written on her at the time. And so um, I said, well, here she is. And so um, um, I just, I became um, just um, so impressed with her. And um, she, she, I was just attracted to her. And so I, um, so I have engaged um, with her and um, worked to explain um, her work for America. And we're glad you did. Thank you. One question that came in is, whatever became of the Mammy Monument? Yes, that is a good question. Uh, thankfully, the Mammy Monument was never constructed. <laughs> and so uh, so we don't have to uh, worry about that um, particular monument. Although this does um, bring up other questions of other um, sorts of Confederate monuments, um, and, th and that's for another conversation. Um, but... Um, but it does uh, beg the question of, you know, the construction of uh, monuments and how um, and how do we engage with these conversations that people um, are wanting to have of things that are important to them, while at the same time not being disrespectful and um, and misrepresenting um, other groups of people at the same time. So, long story short, the Black Mammy Monument was never constructed in Washington D.C. And we are grateful for that. <laughs> yes. Um, how can we expose our school-aged children to these prominent black heroines, some of which would have been in the homespun uh, wisdom, but also um, those other women we're reading about, particularly during this uh, month focusing on women, women, I think. But how can we expose them to that? And are there textbooks, is, or how can we get her story and other stories in textbooks? 
Yes. So um, I think textbooks are one way um, to go about it, but I also encourage um, the um, other individual uh, monographs um, that are being written um, by um, many historians, especially Black women historians, who are uncovering and, um, and exposing these women to larger audiences in a modern era. So, um, so current um, biographies that are being published, in addition to that, children's books. Um, many times um, we write books and we, and we publish information for adult audiences and then forget about the, um, the children audiences in the school system. So, um, so writing um, books for both um, sets of audiences, both adult and children, I think would be helpful in spreading the, um, the information around to all different uh, constituencies. And I understand you might be doing both because you yes. are writing a yes, book. I do, have, I do have a desire to uh, <laughs> do a children's book on Hallie Quinn Brown in addition to my um, major uh, biography on her. And that biography is going to be titled Sisterly Affections. Yes. Tell us about that title. Yes. So one of the things that um, Hallie Quinn Brown said um, about uh, founding a conference for um, black women to um, to meet collectively to discuss their condition um, in America and the things that they um, that they need and desire um, was she said that um, black uh, women needed the contact of sisterly affections mm -hmm. and I just thought that phrase was so powerful and so beautiful and so I decided to um, to take that uh, phrase and 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 see how she um, manifested that in her life right and she did that through her work for and by um, black women. She was committed to uh, black women's empowerment. And so she did that for other black women. And so that contact of sisterly affections really um, illuminates the, um, the, the work of, of Brown, why she did what she did. We can't wait for the book to be published, and we can't wait to have a book launch so that hopefully in a, in a year or so we'll have you back and we'll be celebrating the launch of that book and perhaps the children's version later as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodwin. And we want to say thank you to Melissa Presley, Melissa Presley, who was behind the scenes. Uh, she is the head librarian at Black Mountain Library and certainly did so much to help bring this presentation together. Um, as I said, you can uh, contact Black Mountain Library to get the link to that. And in just a moment, Dr. Goodwin is going to put her contact information if you have questions or if you want to uh, invite her to make this presentation elsewhere, you may get in touch with her there at Warren Wilson College. This has been a delightful time together and wonderful learning for all of us. So thank you very, very much, Dr. Goodwin. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for watching. Goodbye. Welcome back. And uh, that was a presentation on Hallie Quinn Brown, a uh, legendary figure in uh, African-American history, uh, African-American women's history. Uh, and of course, a writer, publisher, public speaker. This is uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, March 19th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with another segment 
of the Pan-African Journal. I can't stand the rain against my window Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, when the rain Can't Stand the Rain uh, here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast on a rainy uh, Saturday night uh, in the city of Detroit, uh, downtown and through other parts of the municipality. We're going to continue our Women's History Month programming uh, with Rosa L. Parks. Uh, Ms. Parks uh, was born in the state of Alabama. She was an activist uh, during her youth. And, of course, uh, became legendary in 1955 as sparking the infamous uh, Montgomery bus boycott that led uh, to the modern-day civil rights movement of the 1950s through the 1970s. Uh, This is an interview uh, with uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks uh, done over a Bay Area, California radio program in 1956 uh, during the uh, Montgomery uh, bus boycott. Uh, let's listen uh, to this interview. The following program is brought to you by the Pacifica Program Service and Radio Archives. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sidney Roger. In my last broadcast, I dealt with a subject that certainly received a great deal of response from you. 
And I thank those of you who have written to me and hope those who haven't will continue to write. The subject matter was hoodlumism on the streets and my feeling that it had to be said, candidly and honestly, that a disproportionate amount of this was among young Negroes, very often just kids, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. I gave what, in my opinion, were some of the reasons for this, but frankly, could come up with no answers. I asked for answers from you. Rather, I asked for a dialogue to be started. I asked then, what can we do to keep these, our children, to save them from this lonely wandering, for they are alone even as gangs, save them from this wandering with this free-floating hatred that explodes in violent eruption that can only add more corrosion to their already too-corroded lives. Well, many of you have written, often long and very thoughtful letters. None of you chided me for bringing up the subject. Quite the contrary. The subject, by the way, will come up again and KPFA will be a medium to set into action this very important dialogue. Next Friday, December 28, at 9.30 p.m., on what is called the 11th hour, the original program will be played again from the original tape, and then a group of people in the studio will discuss the issue. A dialogue will be entered into by some of you who have written and by others whom we call resource people. And hopefully there will be some understanding, if not answers. Some have said that perhaps some better understanding of the recent history and drive toward liberation of the Negro people in the United States might have a very healthy effect on some of these kids, if only they knew. Well, I don't know. It's an idea worth thinking about. You know, it's just been about a hundred years since the Emancipation Proclamation, but emancipation implies something someone gives to someone else. The American Negro particularly and patiently waited and waited and waited for this emancipation and then began his own emancipation. The great turning point, interestingly enough, was not some grand and glorious pre-planned march to greatness, but a quiet event that happened just some seven years ago in December this month. It was in December 1955 that a very quiet, and I found when I met her a very shy woman named Rosa Parks in Birmingham, Alabama, tired after a long day's work, decided not to give up her seat on a bus. And out of that quiet, tired, quiet, and courageous act was born a national movement, the Walk and Pray Bus Boycott of Montgomery, Alabama. After that, a movement with sit-downs, freedom riders, school enrollments, and much more swept the South and inspired the nation. Several months after the event in Montgomery, I had the pleasure of speaking to Rosa Parks in a small apartment in West Oakland where she was visiting. I asked her then what actually happened to set off this train of history, and this was her answer. I left work on my way home December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I boarded the bus downtown in Montgomery on Coates Square. As the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop, the white passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers and they were beginning to 
stand. The seat I occupied was the first of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they, on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be two or three men standing. He looked back and asked that the seats where I had taken, along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated, he demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest, and I was bond, bailed out shortly after the arrest. And the trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day, and it is still continuing. Well, Mrs. Parks, what in the world ever made you decide to be the person who, after all these years of Jim Crow and segregation, what made you at that particular moment decide you were going to keep that seat? I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. But, Mrs. Parks, uh, you had been mistreated for many, many, many years. You've lived most of your life in Montgomery, Alabama. What made you decide at the first part of the month of December 1955 that you had had enough? The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. Well, Mrs. Parks, had you planned this? No, I hadn't. It just happened? Yes, it did. Well, had there been many times before in your life when you thought that maybe you were going to do just that kind of thing? I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. But don't you suppose you and many others also thought one time or another you were going to do this thing sooner or later? Well, we didn't know uh, just what to expect. In our area, we always try to avoid trouble and be as careful as possible to stay out of trouble and along this line. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I had not taken a seat in the white section, as has been reported in many cases. The seat where I occupied, we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home even though at times on this on the same bus route we occupied the same seat with white standing if their space had been taken up, the seats had been taken up. And well, I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. You have done something here that I didn't quite understand myself, namely this. You said that you did not take a seat in the white section that uh, that and that is there's no doubt that has been reported in that way what happened then that you were in what is normally a colored section and because whites had to stand up at this point the driver asked you to get up to allow someone else to sit down yes white persons a white person to sit down yes a person who may or may not have been as tired as you well that's true but who had not paid any more than you had no he hadn't and then what happened 
The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him just call the police, which he did, and when they, they came, they placed me under arrest. Wasn't that a pretty frightening thing to be arrested in Montgomery, Alabama? No, I wasn't frightened at all. You weren't frightened? Why no. weren't you frightened? I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. Because you considered yourself a citizen as well as a human being in Montgomery, Alabama. You say you weren't frightened, and yet to be arrested in Montgomery, especially on a charge in which you are, uh, in which you are challenging the whole system of segregation, could be a pretty frightening thing. It could even lead to a certain amount of uh, physical brutality, couldn't it? That's possible. It could have. But this didn't bother you. No, it didn't. And uh, a lot of people, of course, uh, feel quite ashamed at the disgrace of being arrested. Apparently, you didn't feel there was any disgrace involved in this one. No, not in this one. Well, then you were arrested, and what was the charge? Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama and transportation. Yes, but you were sitting in the colored section. What law were you violating? I didn't think I was violating any. Well, Mrs. Parks, at the recent trial of Reverend M.L. King... It was brought up uh, for by the defense that there had been over many, many years many brutalities and humiliations of Negro passengers on these buses. Uh, can you uh, give us some examples that you yourself have seen or experienced personally of some of these humiliations that took place day after day when you were riding the buses? Yes, I have uh, been refused uh, entrance on the buses because I would not pay my fare at the front and go around to the rear door to enter. Uh, l let me have that again now. You mean you pay your fare at the front and then were forced to walk around and enter into the rear door? Yes, that was the custom. If the bus was crowded up to the point where the white passengers would start occupying. And even if it was raining or anything of that sort, you might have to pay your fare at the front and walk back in the rain to the back of the bus and get in. Yes, that's true. Well, Mrs. Parks, uh, then you were arrested, and you say you went to, uh, you, you posted bond. Uh, did you have a trial? Yes. And you were found innocent or guilty? Guilty. You were found guilty, and then what? The case was appealed. How did this particular incident of your being arrested and, uh, and uh, convicted and uh, appealing, how did this lead to this particular protest? From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. And Monday morning, when the buses were out on their regular run, they remained empty, and people were walking or uh, getting rides in cars with people who would pick them up as best they could. On Monday night, the mass meeting at the Hope Street Baptist Church had been called, and there were many thousands of people there.
they kept coming, and some people never did get in the church. There were so many. And the first day of remaining off the bus had been so successful. It was organized then that uh, we wouldn't uh, ride the bus until our request had been granted. Well, Mrs. Parks, how did word get around Montgomery, Alabama so quickly? Uh, first of all, that you were arrested and uh, convicted, and second of all, how did the word get around so quickly that there would be a meeting and that people would refuse to ride? There were telephone calls from those who knew about it to others, and also an article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat the white section of the bus and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was the first newspaper account. Uh, they didn't write on the day of the trial. Uh, they walked. And then how come they kept right on walking? I feel they kept on walking because I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine. And they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. Uh, how did it happen to become the kind of religious movement it became? Or at least we seem to understand it as a kind of a religious movement. There is the talking of walking and praying. There is the... The, the, the whole appeal to the religious, peaceful aspects, and, of course, a number of ministers have taken a very active part in the leadership. How did this come about? I think this came about because the ministers were very much interested in it, and we had our meetings in the churches, and being the minority, we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or a belligerent attitude. We believe that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance. We had no quarrel with anyone. We only want to stop riding the buses until we are treated as any other passenger. And what do you mean uh, when you say as if you, until you're treated as any other passenger? Does this mean, for example, that you want these buses to be completely desegregated? Yes, that's true. You want to stop the segregation on these buses? Mrs. Rosa Parks, December 1955. It was she who decided she had had it, enough. And by sitting where she did, by being arrested set off what was and probably always will be considered the turning point in this century of the drive toward self-liberation, self-emancipation. She said, I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a citizen and a human being in Montgomery, Alabama. This is going back into history, I'll admit, but it's not going backward. For the march that started then goes on, rising and swelling, to make this a better nation for all. And something worth recalling on this eve of the hundred-year commemoration of the Emancipation Proclamation. Thanks for listening. This is Sidney Rogers speaking. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview with uh, Rosa L. Parks uh, during uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. And, of course, she was uh, being interviewed in the Bay Area of California at KPFA radio station in 1956. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, today, uh, Saturday, um, March 19, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our program. Our final segment uh, deals uh, with the legendary artist, uh, vocalist, musician, Willie May Thornton, uh, who uh, burst onto the scene during the 1950s uh, in uh, the popular music field. Uh, this is an example of her music, and then later we'll hear an interview uh, with her uh, archived interview.
Christian hearted working woman. She sang Christian songs. Hmm. Uh, and uh, did you ever sing with them in the church or when you were youngster? Well, no, not exactly. I used to go to church a lot, but just singing, you know, I didn't do too much singing in the church. Hmm. Um, did you Did you grow up in the town of Montgomery, or did you? Oh, you well, I left there when I was fourteen. Oh, you, you left there when you were fourteen. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you leave with your folks or just take off on your own? No, I left with a show. Oh, you left with a show? What mm-hmm. was that? What was the name of it? No, the Sam Green's Hot Harlem Review mm-hmm. out of Atlanta, Georgia. Is that right? Mm-hmm. How did they happen to, to find you? Did they hear you singing someplace? Well, I did audition on this show when they was playing a little theater there in the hometown. Oh, is that right? Hmm. And where did you tour? Oh, uh, well, we went. Lanner, Birmingham, and back home in Columbus, Georgia, Macon, Georgia, North, South Carolina, and Florida. We just toured practically everywhere. What what year was this roughly? Can you tell us? Well, in, uh, before the war? Or? Well, I started before the war, and then out after the war broke out, then we went to, to and through Texas. Hmm. Uh, what's What sort of things was it was it kind of a minstrel show or was it just a music well a stage show like you know playing in theaters did they have dancers and comics and all that yeah kind of? dancers course you know course girls comedians singers mm-hmm. right. hmm? and um, how long did you stay with them well up until 48 that's when i left in houston i quit the show in houston texas Did you go on your own from then in Houston? Well, in Houston, I uh, started recording uh, records for Don Roby before I recorded from him. But uh, he came out to the club I was working called the Eldorado Ballroom there on Elgin and Darling mm-hmm. to hear me sing. And uh, right then he wanted me under contract, but I didn't sign right then. Who was some of the other people with you there at the time? Or 
was it was it your band or did you just play as no I was playing with a group called uh, Smiley and he was he had Ike Smalley he's a he was the band leader there at the El Dorado. That was his band. And then after he left, another band came in, Pluma Davis and his rock. We call them the House Rockers, and they were doing pretty nice. <laughs> who were who who were some of the other uh, you know singers around town that you remember around you know forty eight around Houston? Around Houston then, well, Gate Mouth Brown, he was real hot there. He was on Peacock label. And uh, Roy Brown, he was in town. He was pretty hot around in that length of time. And I got a chance to meet Louis Jordan when he come to town. Big Joe Turner. And yeah, he used to be a real favorite around Houston, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> Fats Domino, he was working around. That's when he put out this record. They called me the Fat Man. How long did you stay around Houston then? Well, in 51, I cut this record, Let Your Tears Fall, Baby. And I went to San Antonio, and I worked down there. I worked in San Antonio for a while. And when I came back, I was working around Houston, different little nightclubs. And uh, Johnny Otis, he came to town. That was in 52. So he, we did an audition on his show that night when I was working with Gabe Mark Brown. He wanted me to sing with his band, so I did a song with his band, and he liked the way I performed on the stage, so he hired me, so he took take me on tour, New York. Well, you, you toured with, with Johnny mm-hmm. Otis' band then? Yeah, that's when I first went to the Apollo Pete in 52. Oh, that's right. And did you also go to Los Angeles then? Or? Well, we left Houston, and we went to Los Angeles, and uh, while I was there, we recorded Hound Dog. But he did, Don Roby put it on the shelf. So we go from Los Angeles, played in California. We played the tour here, Sweets Ballroom, San Francisco, Fillmore Auditorium. Then we go back to Los Angeles, and then we leave Los Angeles and go back through Houston, Texas, Battling the Blues with Gate Mob Brown. Then we leave there and we goes on through Florida and on back up on around the east coast there coming into New York. It goes into Apollo. That was in June fifty two. So the last part of fifty two we goes Providence, Rhode Island, and all the England states, Boston, Massachusetts, all around up through that. So we leave Providence, that was pretty close to Christmas. And we were supposed, I was supposed to go back, at least I was wanted to go home, kind of homesick, so I wanted to see the old gang. So I called a train, I leave New York, come back to Houston, and I got there just a little before Christmas, so Don Roby, he put me on a show in his nightclub. And I worked at Christmas and at New Year's out to his club, that's before they tore it down, it's called the Peacock. The Bronze Peacock, and they took it down, made the office out of it. Now it's a big office where they cut records. They got a record studio in there where they record. And mm-hmm. Back in the back, they press their own records. Mm-hmm. And 1953, 
1953, that's when I met Johnny Ace. So they sent me to Dayton, Ohio. That's why I joined him there, playing with Farm there at the theater there. I forget the name of the theater. But anyway, I was going to the theater, and I just turned the radio on in the car. And the man said, here's a record that's done nationwide. Hound Dog by Willie Mae Thornton. I said, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard the record in so long. So when we got to the theater, they was blasting it. You could hear it from the theater, from the live speaker on out. Oh, they just playing Hound Dog all over the theater. Mm -hmm. So I goes up in the operating room. I said, you mind?